We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined on the telephone this evening by Donovan Smith in Taichung. And great to be here. And Jia Ting Ye from Cataclan Media in the Bay Area. Good to be here as well. Tonight we'll be discussing a four-pronged government approach to boosting international tourist arrivals, housing rights activists calling on political parties here to put forward concrete policies for dealing with soaring house prices, a petition calling on the US government to purchase Taiwan, big plans for a small domestically developed driverless electronic bus, and moves to promote pet-friendly diners in Taipei. But we'll begin with an aide to Terry Guo this week, telling reporters that the former Honohai chairman is seriously considering the possibility of announcing a bid for the presidency. Now, according to Tsai Chin Yu, an announcement will be made before September the 17th, the deadline for registration as a presidential candidate. Now, the statement comes after Mirror Media reported that Guo, Taipei Mayor Ke Wenzhou and former Legislative Speaker Wang Jingping have agreed to cooperate for a joint 2020 presidential election bid. And Mirror Media is citing Guo's eldest son, Guo Shoucheng, and other sources for confirming that bid. Now, the possible alliance between between Guo, Kerr and Wang is sparking concern within the KMT that it could undermine party unity and cost the party's presidential candidate Hang Guo the presidency. KMT lawmakers are now scrambling to persuade party chairman Udini to arrange a meeting between Guo and Han to head off any serious split within the party. But the KMT this week also passed a resolution making it easier to revoke the party membership of members who don't support Han in the January ballot. And that obviously targets Guo and Wang. So so, Donovan, there we go. Mr. Gore and Mr. Wong and Mr. Kerr. It's looking more likely as the as we near the election time. Well, I'll completely believe it when I see it because there's some some uh, policy differences and some personality differences. But the you know, but there's a very good chance that they're going to try and make it work because politically it does make a lot of sense. Um, Terry Go right now it looks like it would have to be the presidential candidate. Um, what he has to offer is huge steeping gobs, steaming gobs of cash. Um, and uh, now he, for him and Wong, this is kind of their last chance to make a big splash. So uh, Wang Jinping, it would make sense for him in the sense that if he, uh, you know, he's still technically running for president, um, but uh, you know, he may be looking for something else. Um, I think I mentioned before the possibility of if Han Guoyu's campaign falters, uh, the KMT may come crawling to Terry Go uh, to be their candidate, or if Terry Go actually wins, then they come crawling back. The price then is uh, Wang Jinping becomes the party chair, which we know is something he's wanted for a long time. The other possibility he might offer Wang Jinping is premier. Um, that's one position that he hasn't held, and of course Wang Jinping's famous for being the most uh, the, the most famous of the uh, patronage faction uh, politicians. So what he gets also. And this, the only way that this is going to work is if Terry Go pumps huge amounts of cash into the patronage factions. When Wang Jinping calls, all the patronage faction people will, will, will answer his call. But he has to have something to give them because they're, they're all about the money and the power. So he's got to have something good. Terry Go's got the something good. So uh, now for Cook, he, he, he's got time. Uh, you know, he's young enough that he can run at a later date. He seems okay for being the Taipei mayor, which is one of the most powerful positions in the country. He's already said that he's willing to step aside on being president. He's not interested in being vice president. 
and he's fine with not being the premier. So he's looking more, I think, long term because he's he's younger. So he's looking for the potential. Uh, you know, for he this can help his party. It could help him in a lot of ways politically, and he just wants to get stuff done. Right, jetting. So splits within the KMT. Nothing new, but this looks like a bigger split than in previous elections. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it don't count um, what happened in the 2000 cycle, right? So yeah. um, that was, uh, I mean, that's going to go down, that, that's already gone down in Taiwanese history as you know, one of the biggest splits, um, basically handing, you know, precipitating in the first ever transition of power in Taiwanese politics. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, that experience then eventually led to in 2004, where James Sung and uh, Lian San decided to, um, you know, drop their differences, so to speak, and, you know, get back together again, right? So I think in Taiwanese presidential election politics, um, three-way races um, has, it, it just never really came, um, you know, ever since 2000, it's just never really been the case. Um, it always kind of, goes back to the means, so to speak, of, um, you know, having two major camps going against each other, right? Because, um, as you mentioned, the KMT now is trying to say, well, okay, if if Terry uh, Guo is going to um, take away a significant amount of the vote from Han Guoyu, that um, it makes both of them losers, right? Then both of them lose, and, you know, they might as well work together in some way, right? And, and so I think... Um, yeah, just if you look at Taiwanese history, three-way presidential races never really turn out um, well for um, the people who um, split, right? And I think um, the way this is kind of shaping up is, um, I mean, it, it does remind one of, you know, back in 2000, right, where you have more the elite, um, you know, sort of the more, um, yeah, sort of the more elite KMT um <clears throat> supporters thinking, well, Terry Guo has sort of that professional, that business, you know, sort of that, uh, you know, internationalist image, whereas you have more um, sort of grassroots supporters saying, well, Han is their person. So, um, so, yeah. And Donovan, of course, there's some people who have said that, I mean, if Terry Guo does opt to join Kerwin Jur, and obviously he'll have to run for Kerwin Jur's political party, Basically, Terry Guo will still be at the mercy of Kerwin Jia and his political party, even if he wins the election. So it won't be a Terry Guo victory, it will be a victory for Kerr and his political party. Not necessarily. This is the interesting thing. <clears throat> One of the moves that uh, that uh, that Kirk, he did with setting up this new party is he left open the option of uh, party members being m- members simultaneously of other parties. Um, now, Terry Go, there's a good case to be made that having a political party backing him would be helpful in the sense that, um, you know, that would mean that he could create a coattails effect and hopefully get for him and uh, get some uh, legislators uh, elected as well. Um, so the TPP would be one vehicle for that. However, Wang Jinping may try to convince him to fight to stay on in the KMT so that they could leave open the option of taking over the party. Although, um, there's also the other theory, which uh, I, that Wu Duni originally, right from the get-go, was setting up uh, uh, Han Guoyu, stole him out from Wang, Wang Jinping, and is, is hoping that Han Guoyu's campaign will collapse, that he, as the party chair, becomes the, the natural heir presumptive, like the last election. However, all of these plans, uh, if if they're, they're true, uh, Wu trying to 
you know, set, setting Han up for a fall to take over, Wang Jinping, to, you know, using Terry Go for a reverse takeover. It could all be totally thrown off because there's a whole, there's a movement brewing now to draft uh, uh, Hoyoi from New Taipei City. <laughs> and he's more popular probably than all three of them combined at this point. Um, but one of the, just a, one, one other quick point is that the polls right now have... Uh, when it's a three-way race, they're, they're, they're fairly close at this point between Tsai, a Go plus Ke, uh, and Han Guoyu. Uh, so they're all kind of uh, kind of a three-way, but Han Guoyu has really high negatives, uh, and they're growing. And the, the ferocity of the people who really like them and the ferocity of the people who really hate them is increasing dramatically. Uh, so I think his ability to win over undecideds and I don't knows is diminishing. Right, and Jieting, I mean, do you think the party chairman Udini could arrange a meeting between Guar and Han? And if so, do you think it will be any good? Mm, I don't know. I, I think right now, if you were to arrange that sort of meeting, you would have to have something um, very significant uh, to concede to Terry Guar, right? Because he is pretty much all but set to run. Um, so if for him to sort of reverse the momentum and say, okay, well, you know, after months and months of this, you know, soap opera or whether who's going to run or going to run for this party or not. Um, and then he comes out and says, oops, sorry, I'm not running after all. Um, there has to be some sort of explanation for that, right? And he has to con- he has to extract some sort of confession for the trouble that he has um, put himself through. So, um, you know, at this point, I can't imagine what that would be. Um, I can't. And I, I also, it's hard for me to imagine um, you know, the KMT going through that um, you know, switch for Roo where, okay, well, you know, we went through this primary process, it like, and we take the party, take the candidate, and then to have the party leadership say, well, oops, you know, now we're going to, you know, for reasons that everybody can see, um, we're going to switch to somebody else, right? And, you know, last time that they did, they, they did that, well, their candidate, the old one, nor the new one, won. So, um, you know, it's not very good precedent for them either. Right, Donovan, I mean, do you think Udini could offer Guo anything? Because I mean, the only thing he's got is the vice presidency. Premiership. Oh. Uh, that would be the one thing. But here's the funny thing. A few weeks ago, I, I, I noticed this. For some reason, it, it wasn't a big story. But <clears throat> there, was, there was talk of him trying to set up a meeting a few weeks ago. And it came out that Udini doesn't even have Terry Goh's phone number. He can't get through to him directly, which seemed really odd to me, considering that he's the KMT chairman, and Terry Goh was one of the big candidates in the primary. Um, but yeah, the only thing I can think of that he could offer Terry Goh, because Terry Goh, if he says, well, maybe next election cycle, that's eight years from now, and Terry Goh's going to go, no. So the only possible thing I can think of would be the premiership, and I think right now Terry Goh's calculating that he's going to go down in history more as a, you know, if he's a president than as a premier. Premier is basically a punching bag position. But not the vice presidency. That would be completely out, obviously, yeah. Anyway, moving on, and the Ministry of Transport this week announced that it's working on implementing a four-pronged plan to increase the number of international visitors to Taiwan. Now, of course, this move follows China's recent ban on individual visits by nationals from 47 of its cities. Now, the plan will streamline the visa application process for international visitors, regularly review existing visa-free trial programs to the Philippines, Thailand and Russia, and also extend visa-free privileges to holders of Indonesian e-pass 
exports. Now, subsidies to international carriers that operate charter flights to Taiwan will also be increased to encourage airlines to fly to more destinations here, and international visitors will also be offered vouchers to use the high-speed rail. Now, according to Transport Minister Lin Jialong, the government is planning to upgrade its tourism bureau also, and it's entering into discussions with tourism stakeholders with the aim of increasing international visitor arrivals to 20 million by 2030. Now, Lin also says the government believes that proper policies, resources and organisational structures need to be introduced if Taiwan hopes to the tourism sector to be a major driver of the island's economy. So, Donovan, they're still trying to get international visitors and they seem to be scrambling here. Yeah, a bit. Um, But the fact of the matter is they've actually been pretty successful over the last few years. Um, Visitor numbers are up um, from, you know, countries outside of China. Uh, So, so far what they've been doing has has worked to a certain degree. I mean, it's largely offset uh, the big drop of, you know, in in, uh, Chinese tourists, particularly the tour groups, after uh, Thai was elected. So, you know, so far so good. Um, They're basically just doubling down on what they've been doing. So, uh, you know, since it seems to be working, I guess, uh, you know, I, I, I guess it's a smart move. But, I mean, they seem to be putting their eggs in one basket here, with, as in the, basically the southbound policy countries. Could they be going further afield? I, I think they should, and, and they're not entirely specific there. But, I mean, adding in Russia into the mix is an interesting one. Uh, that was, like, a month or so ago. Um, they, they could be, and they are promoting a lot to Japanese tourists and South Korean tourists because they spend heavily. Uh, Hong Kong and Macau have been bright spots, although right now, obviously, that's a... a, a you know, the the people coming over may be coming over for entirely different reasons. Um, uh, yeah, it would be good if they, they promoted more maybe in Europe or the United States, but, the, you know, the, those kinds of tourists would take a long time to materialize because the, the cost of flying all the way out and time investment to come all the way out to Taiwan is higher if you're coming from the United States or Europe, and so they're probably more likely to spend more time planning it longer term in advance, whereas if you're in Japan, you're, you're going one time zone over and a few hours and you're here. Yeah, I mean, I, um, you know, I could speak sort of from personal experience, you know, right when I take my family to Taiwan, it is um, as an American tourist, right? And, um, I mean, there are definitely things about Taiwan that are very attractive, um, to to America to you know us to myself as an American foreign tourist, um, but you know I, I think Donovan is right in that if you're talking about um, European or American North American travelers, um, it is sort of a um, it is much more of a destination um, that you do have to plan a little bit further in advance. Um, whereas if you're talking about regionally, it is cheaper to fly um, faster. You can kind of just come over for a weekend and then leave. Um, so if you want to um, boost numbers quickly, I think it makes sense as a policy matter to focus on these you know, countries first. And then I, I guess the other thing is, um, it sounds like a lot of the policy is geared towards um, just making the bureaucracy and the paperwork a lot simpler. Um, then, of course, there is the question of, well, once they get to Taiwan, what are they going to do, right? Where are they going to go? Um, you know, it's... Can they find the things that, you know, attract them to Taiwan in the first place? Right? What, is, what is that, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I think that um, is a whole other sort of discussion and brainstorming session for the tourism industry in Taiwan. 
Right, and Donovan, I mean, Russia, you mentioned Russia. This is a good thing, you think, Russia, because, of course, Russians, since, of course, the fall of the Soviet Union and in recent years, have been flooding most of Asia. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, Russia has, I believe, the, the biggest or one of the biggest uh, income inequality uh, figures in the world. So it's got a, a, it's got a, and because it is a big populous country, a hundred and some odd million people, that that strata that has money has big money. Um, and so they'll, they'll, you know, they'll fly over and spend considerable amounts of cash. Um, you know, so I, my suspicion there is that they're targeting the, the, the wealthy Russians. Right, and housing rights activists here this week mark the 30th anniversary of the massive 1989 affordable housing protest by calling on all of the island's political parties to put forward concrete policies for dealing with soaring house prices. Now, speaking to reporters at an event marking the affordable housing protest, housing movement spokesperson Pung Young Kai said that three decades after the historic protest on Zhongshou East Road, housing prices have continued to rise. Now, he said that housing price income to ratio in Taipei in 1989 stood at 8.58 to 1 but by 2014 that ratio had risen to 14.94 to 1 and he said that those figures show efforts to curb housing prices by successive governments have proven to be utterly ineffective. Now while affordable social housing units have been built over the past 30 years the housing rights spokesperson said that no reforms have been put into place to ensure property transactions transparency to lower property taxes or to utilise vacant properties. So Donovan housing prices, of course you live in a city where housing prices are soaring and of course more private housing is being built in a rather expensive area. Yeah, um, well, there's a lot going on here. Um, this goes all the way back to Lee Dung Hui's era, where taxes were intentionally kept low, um, and that was, you know, some people believe this is part of the his, the agreement that they, you know they pushed through democratization. Um, you've got a lot of people are blaming uh, China um, and Chinese investors. I, I really think that's not much the case at all. Uh, I think it's returning Taiwanese business people, and here in Taichung, you're getting a lot of people uh, buying uh, apartments for retirement from Taipei. It's so much cheaper, and they plan to retire to Taichung, but they're, they, you know, they buy the apartment and they sit on it for 10, 20, 30 years before until they retire. Um, you've got lots and lots of people from China buying up apartments as investments or as, again, also for retirement homes, and they're just sitting empty. Um, another major factor that's driving it here in Taichung is uh, there's a lot of these factories are coming back, and there's been a big spike, about 20-some-odd percent, I believe, in uh, specifically the Xituan and Nantuan districts, which are close to the, uh, the Science Park, um, the Dadu Mountain Area Science Park, and the, and, uh, the Industrial Park, and the Precision Machinery Park. So there's a lot of activity sort of at that end of town. And both of those are not too far from Chichi, which is, of course, the, you know, the, the, the slick, glossy new one. But there's another area uh, around Beitwen where they're going to be building the second uh, Costco. It's near Dakan, so, so it's pretty. In, and it, the MRT, it's an MRT stop, and it's a redevelopment zone. Um, and so that is that right now is also a hot area. There's a, a lot of business transaction. That incidentally is is right in not is not too far from where uh, Hong Tzu Young brought a lot of attention to 
the uh, public housing project from Lin Jialong's era, which was canceled under Liu Xiaoyan, and that's sort of part of that area. Right, I mean, Jieting, would you consider buying property in Taipei at the moment? Uh, I mean, if I could afford it, sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, um, yeah, just, uh, you know, if you look at housing prices in Taipei, they are um, actually comparable to housing prices here in San, the San Francisco Bay, Bay Area, which is um, pretty much one of the most expensive um, areas in the world, right? And so, um, but then the thing is, obviously, wages in Taiwan does not compare to wages in the Bay Area at all. Um, and and so it, 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 it's always... Um, if you think about it on a macro scale, right, there's so much value, so much economic value that's tied up in um, real estate, right? And I guess the question is, well, how do you free up that value to create economic activity, which then drive wages higher, um, and then some more people can afford housing, right? And so I think, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, sort of at the lowest levels, people who can't afford any housing, um, you know, to have government-funded um, public housing projects for them, right? But then even, you know, middle class, even, you know, relatively upper middle class, um, well-to-do young people find it very hard to buy a place, right? And, you know, and again, in Taiwan, in Taiwan there's such a sort of a cultural importance on, you know, sort of buying your own place, having your own place. Um, I mean, it, it does. It does become. Um, it, it does sort of lock and make um, social mobility. You know, sort of this people moving up the social ranks, um, you know, moving up the wealth. Um, you know, much harder in Taiwan these days, right? And so there, I mean, constantly hear people, you know, young people who say, "Hey, you know, I work really hard. I put in." I put in my effort, yet, um, you know, my parents, you know, when they were coming up, they bought, you know, they bought three houses, and now I can't even afford rent, right? And so, you know, I think that's, um, you know, and, and just to note, I think this definitely drives a lot of um, the politics in Taiwan. You know, we um, obviously talk about um, the China factor, right, Taiwan, um, and, you know, national identity. But, you know, I think a lot of people do... Um, find this, this sort of housing situation very frustrating, right? And it doesn't seem like any politician in Taiwan has any, you know, silver bullet solution in the short term. There are a few things they can do. Um, <clears throat> to help renters and lower-income people, they can reduce the property taxes uh, on, <clears throat> on apartment owners who rent out rather than leaving them idle. Um, and that would, you know, help keep the the, the rental market <clears throat> from spiraling out of control. And recently, but the, there, there, this ties into uh, local government revenue. Recently, uh, Lin Jialong raised in some areas raised uh, both the land and uh, the ownership tax by over a hundred percent. That particularly in the Chichi area. Um, and that priced a lot of renters out of several districts, uh, which was the knock-on effect, uh, because the uh, you know obviously the landlords uh, you know pe- took that added amount, passed it on to their tenants. Um, so, uh, but there, there's a few things which I think that that are positive if they can uh, loosen up some of that capacity for renters. Right now, in Taichung at least, there's there are large areas. Uh, open for development that are now about to start to be developed. 
So there's going to be a lot of new housing coming onto the market. And I think what's going to happen is you'll see some of the middle class and wealthier people moving out of the older buildings and into the newer ones, which is going to free up a lot of the, the older, you know, the 10, 15, 20-year-old high-rises uh, to lower-income buyers. And for the first time in years, income recently has started to edge up. Um, you know, after barely budging since 1999, it is actually starting to come up. Uh, and on top of that, we've got all of these uh, businesses and jobs coming back from China, and they're likely to bring back, and this is the one of the big missing elements, is that a big chunk of Taiwan's middle class moved to China. These were the, you know, the, the tech, the R&D people. These were the factory floor managers. These were the... You know, the, they they held all the middle positions in the in these companies. They reloca- relocated to China. They're coming back with these middle class jobs, and then that's going to flow out toward hairdressers and people, you know, pet groomers, and you know, all these other sort of middle income service businesses. Uh, so I, I think actually we're you know we're we're looking toward. I, I think the things are going to improve somewhat over the next few years. Right, and we have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Thursday stressed that Taiwan is not for sale and cannot be bought by any country. Now that statement was in response to a petition which was posted on a United States government website under the heading Purchase Taiwan. Now the petition on the We the People website was created on August the 27th by someone using the name CC and it calls on the United States well to purchase Taiwan instead of Greenland and thus create, according to CC, a win-win situation. Now, the petition claims that by purchasing Taiwan, the US security and its interests in the Asia-Pacific region will be bolstered, and it also protect Taiwanese people from communism. Now, according to the Foreign Ministry, well, Taiwan is a sovereign independent country with its own government, armed forces and capacity to conduct foreign relations and cannot be purchased, much the same as Greenland and Denmark both said last week to Donald Trump when he offered to purchase Greenland. Now, the petition has to gain at least 100,000 signatures within 30 days to receive an official response from the White House. Now, before I started to record this show, the Purchase Taiwan petition had garnered 575 signatures. So, Donovan, there we go. The America should purchase Taiwan. <laughs> you know that the person who put up the petition is either from the Taiwan civil government uh, group or from the 51st staters. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's quite funny. Um, considering the property values here, I'm not sure that the U.S. could afford it. Um, <clears throat> but I'm sure that Donald Trump would look at it and go, oh, nice beachfront property, even though there's very little here, which helps protect us from China. Um yeah, it, it, would, it would. You know, obviously, if it were to happen, it would. It would provide. It would. You know, mean for example, uh, we wouldn't have to spend so much on you know things like defense and stuff like that. It would provide the U.S. forward bases uh, and all that kind of you know first island chain uh, you know line of defense stuff. Uh, but of course, it's a joke. I mean, <laughs> realistically, this is not going to happen. It is funny. Um, 
but and, and I would love to see Donald Trump come up with an official response because it would be pretty funny uh, and see China's response. But um, yeah, it's not serious. So, Jieting, there we go. If it garners 100,000 signatures within 30 days from August the 27th, the White House will have to comment on it. Do you think a Donald Trump comment would be funny, annoying, or just completely inane? Uh, I mean, given it's Donald Trump, um, no one really knows how he's going to react to <laughs> anything, I think. Um, but just, uh, you know, if you look at history, this um, proposal was actually has actually been around for more than 150 years. Mm-hmm. Um the um you know back then um i think it was u.s um ambassador to japan Calvin harris has suggested that um the u.s purchased taiwan from the king um also other american um commodore perry talked about invading it um yeah so um so the idea is not new um i mean definitely precedes you know the republic of china precedes the People's Republic of China, um, you know, and and there was and apparently there was um, funds allocated to purchase Taiwan, which then ended up buying um, Alaska, which you know obviously is um, is very interesting, right? Because it's also this you know sort of Arctic, um, more than you know huge piece of barren land, uh, such, such as Greenland, right? So like now you have people who say, well, you know, Greenland that kind of inspired this, I guess, latest. Um, you know, news story about um, with, with the petition. But yeah, the idea itself is not new. Um, and obviously, as Susanna mentioned, there, were, there are people in Taiwan, you know, very small French groups that um, have been harping on this idea. Um, and then just one, one last note um, when um, the, uh, after World War II, um, the independence activists or sort of you know, anti ROC activists from Taiwan. Um, their strategy was to appeal to the United Nations to take um, Taiwan as protectorate, right? And so in, you know, the argument was, well, the um, UN um, supersede um, you know, actions on behalf of the Allied, Ar- uh, Allied forces, right? And so Taiwan um, should be given the chance to, um, you know, have to hold a referendum for plebiscite on uh, national status, right? And so that. That idea, um, you know, sort of this idea of appealing to the international community um, to make Taiwan sort of more of an international, um, you know, on what where, where status is, you know, undetermined. Right? So that's also always been this common string um, within um, the pro-independence uh, camps, you know, dating back, you know, 100, 150 years ago. I mean, I can I can add to that too. Um, after World War II, the the U.S. Uh, took over the Japanese home islands. Um, you know, I mean, for example, you know, Germany was partitioned into four segments with four different Allied powers uh, controlling uh, different segments, which led to East and West Germany. Uh, Japan was partitioned between the the two different allies, the Republic of China, which was handed uh, Formosa, and then the U.S. Took over the Japanese home islands as allied protectorates. Um, so, I mean, if the U.S. had decided to take the Taiwan as an allied protectorate at that time, you know, that could have produced quite a different history. Also, the Taiwan civil government people actually took it to court, <clears throat> claiming that the U.S. as the supreme allied power in the Pacific should uh, take Taiwan back. Um, and the court actually accepted the case uh, on the on the. <clears throat> on the idea that the that 
Taiwan's uh, status remained undetermined, which is U.S. which is the U.S. position. Uh, but the court basically finally ruled, said, "Look, we can't call the Allied Powers. Who are we going to get on the phone if we call the Soviet Union now? You have to take this up with the Allied Powers, and not a U.S. court." Right, and moving on from that issue, the Ministry of Economic Affairs this week unveiled Taiwan's first domestically developed driverless electronic bus. Now it's dubbed the Wind Bus, and the vehicle is equipped with a three-positioning... Si- I'll say that all over again. <coughs> Blew it completely, which I knew what I was going to do on that one. Now, moving on to from that serious story to another serious story, the Ministry of Economic Affairs this week unveiled Taiwan's first domestically developed driverless electronic bus. Now, dubbed the Wind Bus, the vehicle is equipped with three positioning systems that can determine the best route on different terrain and can also navigate a route via vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-roadside facility communication signals system. Now, the autonomous vehicle can actually carry six passengers. Now, Economics Minister Shen Rongjin said the Wind Bus is scheduled for mass production in 2021 and the government is hoping to export it. So there you go, Donovan. A, a six-person electronic bus for export. A big money maker or not such a big money maker? It depends on how good it is. <clears throat> um, the system, I mean, from the reports, it said it was a level four, which is pretty good. Um, but, I mean, they're going to have to prove it on the ground and that'll take a few years. Now, I know they, they plan to test it in Lugang. Um you know, the little windy streets there. So that might be a good test case. Um, but, yeah, I mean, long term, this is a, you know, the, these autonomous vehicles are a great idea. They're, they'll be safer. They'll be quicker. They'll be more flexible. Uh, these little buses could, you know, a six-person bus like that, you could basically call it, and then it would come to you sort of like a taxi. Would, it would open up possibilities like that. Taiwan is facing a labor shortage uh, you know, the workforce is actually shrinking, so I, worrying, I don't think we need to worry too much about uh, unemployment as a, as a, as a you know, a, a reaction or a fallout from this. So overall, I think this is quite positive. Whether this will be internationally competitive uh, as a business uh, and you know, Taiwan-made buses will take the world by storm, I have no idea. And Jetting, of course, you live in San Francisco, where, of course, a company called Apple is virtually located. Do you see the Taiwan-made electronic driverless bus surpassing anything that Apple could do? Um, I, I mean, I don't see why not. Um, I mean, Tesla is also located here. Um, obviously, Waymo um, part of um, sort of the Google family. You know, if you go down the street around this where I live, you see a ton of vehicles being tested at the time, right? Um, and so, yeah, I, I think... In, in, you know, I, I think in the United States, people um, people don't think about buses, right? Um, you know, people think about autonomous vehicles in terms of, well, you know, I don't have to drive my car, right? My car will drive itself, right? And I'm, I'm the I'm the only one sitting there, right? And then you have um, you have um, you know Tesla kind of you know, doing things with um, trucks, right? With um, you know big commercial um, you know eighteen wheeler transport. Right, and so I think the there might be a market segment for these small, um, you know, multi seat buses where you know it kind of operates like Uber Pool, right? Whereas, you know, you, you call it, and then you know where it kind of it, 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 you know it, it's coupled with some sort of algorithm to um, you know maximize efficient or pick up and drop off, and especially you know in places you know other, anywhere other than the United in the United States where we have about. Right, and so I, I think um, you know it, it, 
it is some somewhat of an interesting interesting idea, and it is. Um, I, I do want to say it is something that um, people in the United States might not necessarily have thought of. Um, Right, and before we go this week, the Taipei City Animal Protection Office is seeking to promote the capital as a pet-friendly place, and it held an event showcasing healthy dog meals made by different pet-friendly restaurants. Now, one of the meals was a steak dish presented in bite-sized pieces with tomatoes and baby corn, which was served with steamed rice and dog biscuits. Another dish was unseasoned burger meat on a bed of cauliflower and broccoli. And the other meals included a vegetable and chicken rice risotto, chicken meatballs served with diced vegetables, and a steak rice dish tossed with vegetables and egg. Now, according to the Taipei Department of Economic Development, there are currently 123 pet-friendly premises in the capital at the moment, of which 78 are eateries. Now, the city government says it's hoping to promote Taipei as a pet-friendly city, so pet owners can go to more places with, well, their pets. So there, Donovan, there you go, more pet restaurants where you can go and sit and have a meal looking at someone's dog or cat. Yeah, this, is, this to me sounds awful. I mean, really awful. I'm a allergic to, to, to animals. So uh, th- this is a nightmare come true. I, I, I consider the idea of bringing dogs and cats uh, into restaurants unsanitary, unpleasant, disturbing. Um, and, you know, where, where you know, and then Taiwan's trying to get tourists, so that means that people will be bringing them on planes, trains, uh, and buses, uh, which just compounds my misery. Um, I, so I really I find this to, to be a terrible, terrible idea. Plus, Taiwan just recently lost its rabies-free status. So what are they trying to do? Are they going to try and get international tourists uh, bringing in, you know, there's a lot of quarantine issues here. So I don't think they're going to get much in the way of international pet travel. Um, so they're just going to clog up our existing system with animals in cages, which is really not very pleasant. You know, I'm sure that if you're a dog or a cat, spending, you know, several hours in a cage on a bus is, is not a pleasant idea. And Jieting, would you, would you think about frequenting a restaurant where you'd be sitting next to someone's dog or cat? Um, no, not myself. I mean, unless I was bringing my dog, right? I, I mean, I think, I don't know. I, I, mean, <laughs> um, I, I, I think the idea of having specific places where, you know, people with dogs can all go there and have, you know, and then be together so they don't have to take their dogs to, you know, anywhere else. And that, that might not be such a bad idea, right? If, you know, it's, it, it basically you couple that with, okay, you're not allowed to take your dogs or cat or whatever pet you have uh, anywhere. Um, that is the eatery, um, except at these, you know, either certified or, you know, um, you know, sort of from permitted places where you can take your pet and you can interact with other pet owners and there are, you know, sanitary measures in place. There are, uh, things for your pet to do. You know, I, I don't see, I don't see why not, right? I think the problem as Donovan described is, you know, like the slippery, like the slippery slope pigs on the Kaisi rail, right? So, uh, yeah. Um, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope, you know, this, uh, you know, I hope people give it this good thing and, you know, obviously being pet friendly is never a bad thing. It's just, you know, obviously how to do it. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined on the telephone today by Donovan Smith.
and uh, have a great weekend. And Jieting Year. Have a great weekend as well. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.